Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello, welcome to Operation Silver Screen. This cinema-related operation has been created to clear our desks from stacks of open cases. What are these cases? Well, even being the film lovers that we are, Caitlin and I have a huge backlog of must-see films that we still need to experience. So each week we'll tackle a film that either one of us or both of us still need to see. We will then provide a debrief of our week's mission, given our outlook on the film's popularity and significance, as well as providing our opinion on whether or not it is worth seeing and other fun insights. Now this time around, Caitlin, this is actually a first for us for the podcast, in which it is a movie that you have seen that I have not seen. Oh, I actually didn't realize I don't that. know, because we've seen about the same amount of films, but I think I've just seen more of the classics and the best of, I guess. I think you've seen more modern. I agree. I think I've seen a lot of random stuff. Yeah. More modern. Yeah, I think I have seen a, a lot more modern. I've seen, I mean, I've seen like Citizen Kane and you haven't. True, true. There, there are some coming up. So there, there's some yeah, in we there. We have Breathless coming up later, and that's another one. So this week's mission was an important one, though, but aside from me having watched it and you haven't, and that's because we have Earth Day coming up on April 22nd. So we really thought we need to become one with nature this week and celebrate the holiday a bit early by watching an animated film by the renowned and beloved director Hayao Miyazaki. This is a film that not only tackles the theme of environmentalism, but also the dangers of industrialism, and has strong anti-war ideologies and also an urge towards non-violence and pacifism. And no, we're not talking about Princess Mononoke either. This week we watched Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, a film that predates Princess Mononoke by 13 years and also predates Studio Ghibli itself. This film was based off of Miyazaki's manga by the same name and draws influences from several of our different sources, including the Odyssey, Japanese folklore, and even Dune. But before we get into our pick today, we do have a few special guests joining us, and these are two people that I consider well-versed in anime. I actually have a group chat with both of our guests today where we regularly discuss different shows and movies we are watching in that regard. But neither them nor Brian have seen Nausicaa until this week, so why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Uh, I guess I'll go first. Uh, my name is Connor. I've, I think I've been mentioned on this podcast before for making the sad anime trilogy. Is that what we called it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that... That's me. I'm Connor. I am one of the guests. <laughs> and I am Capo. I watched the sad anime trilogy, and I am also one of the guests. Mm-hmm. I also, I don't know if this is relevant, but I'm also getting my PhD in environment and natural resources, so I'm good with Earth Day stuff. Yay! Woohoo! I, th- I think that's relevant. I think that's probably relevant. Yeah, that's definitely relevant. So before we get into Nausicaa, let's go ahead and build up your case files a bit for our operation here. So first and foremost, uh, what would you consider your favorite movie? And it doesn't have to be anime, but it has to be one that you think everyone has seen and one that you think not many people have seen. Should I go first again? I'm going to go first again. I'm going right for it. Uh, I think my sort of general audience one is, I got to say Inception. I don't know what it is, but that movie just always comes to mind whenever whenever someone says, what's your favorite movie? And in terms of uh, sort of less seen, you know, you know less general movies, uh... Kate and I were just talking about this movie actually like last week. Uh, the Lighthouse. I adore The Lighthouse. I, it's my favorite movie of 2019. It's I love that movie so much. That is definitely that's that's. Oof, right, that and my favorite, and I recently like kind of realized this like a year or so ago, but it's probably uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like it's always been in that like top ten since I saw it. But love the colors. Love. I'm not even like the biggest uh, like Wes Anderson fan, but I really love Grand Budapest Hotel and. Uh, 
less known one. This is a fairly deep cut, but it is a legit top 10 movie for me. It's this Hungarian movie called Control. It's about people who are like ticket takers in like the like the subway system. Um, and it's directed by Nimrod Antal, who's done a lot of like American stuff. He's a, like a, an American based director. But his debut was this movie. It's very like genre bendy, but very, very fun. K-O-N-T-O-L-L, Control. So I think you got me there, because that one I haven't seen, so I think you're on the nose of one that many people it haven't was seen. Pretty, it was on Netflix one day, and it was like back like 2010, 2011, and I was just trying to look for diff- movies from different countries just to like see stuff, and I was like, this was the only like Hungarian one. So I was like, sure, just on a, on a whim, and really liked it. I don't know that I've ever actually seen the Hungarian movie. Maybe I'll have to check that out later. <laughs> So, for our next question for your case file, what is your top three favorite anime? And it could be anime movie, anime series, it could be both, whichever one kind of suits what you want. Uh, I guess I'll start. I'll continue the trend of that. Uh, Number one, without doubt, JoJo series. Love JoJo. Love those strong men punching things with their their weird ghosts. Uh, Number two, I'd say, like, I guess you can count, if you can count the Fate series as, like, or that Umbrella with multiple really good anime series underneath it, I guess I'd count that as well. And then my number three, I'm going to take a bit of a zigzag here. Uh, I just have really fond memories whenever I think of the like dub of the f- original Digimon Adventure movie. Like That movie has just brought me so much happiness over the years, like even to this day. Like, spanning about, like I don't know, like probably close to two decades, that movie just warms my heart. See, this is why we're friends, because we had, like, an uncut or unaired episode when we talked about our favorite anime movies, and I said, How's Moving Castle is it? But low-key, <laughs> it's the Digimon movie. It's, it's perfect. It's so perfect. But yeah, so that was never aired, so you never got to know my, my deep love for the Digimon movie. And I also have been trying to get Brian to get into the Fate series. I was trying to get him to watch Fate Zero. Keep working at it. Which is my favorite of the Fate series. It's probably the best one, yeah. Um, so I'm torn between Zero and Heaven's Feel still for my favorite, but it's definitely tied between those two. I was trying to like think what Connor's three would be, and I got two of them. The other, the third one that I thought it was going to be was going to be Hunter Hunter, but I can I. That's fair. I, there was a split second where I was like Hunter X Hunter. No, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was the, that was the split second. It was gone. Poor split second. Uh, my top three mm-hmm. are. Um, number one's My Hero Academia. It was the show that got me into anime. I was very obsessed with it, and I still have this huge, like, affective connection to it. Two is uh, A Place Further Than the Universe, the show about the girls who go to Antarctica. And three is Kaguya-sama, Love is War. I love the description of it as being, like, De- if Death Note was a romantic comedy. Um, love it, love it, love it. But also, kind of rounding out the top five, because I have to list everything. Uh, but number five is this show called Mushishi, which is very much uh, ties like environmental stuff to like the spiritual stuff. Soundtracks are very sim- uh, similar to like Princess Mononoke and similar like aesthetic um, and kind of buggy because the mushi mushi technically means bug, but they're different in the show. But whatever, but very buggy for for Nausicaa. <laughs> gotcha. So that fits right in. Yeah, because uh, I've seen Mushishi the the first season at least. I've been putting off the second season for a while. And even in this movie that we're going to be talking about, the the Ohms, the full name Omushi, uh, she meaning insect. So, yeah, when I saw that, the first thing I thought thought about was Mushishi. Hmm, I did not know that. I didn't know that. Already dropping those fun facts. 
<laughs> already. So now, this isn't the first Studio Ghibli film or a Studio Ghibli-associated film that we've discussed on this podcast. We had a prior episode where we talked about Grave of the Fireflies, but this is the first Hayao Miyazaki film that we've tackled. So before we get into why we chose this particular film, I do want to hear a bit more about your history with Studio Ghibli and with Miyazaki as a director. And I know for me and a lot of other people, I grew up with Studio Ghibli. Uh, Like most people, Spirit Away was my first entry into it and into Miyazaki's films. And then it just kind of went from there. I would have friends come over when I was like in elementary, middle school, when you'd have sleepovers and we'd watch all the films together and we'd watch our favorites over and over again. And I think I, I was looking it up and I think I've seen almost all of Miyazaki's filmography except for his first film which is the castle of i'm not gonna try to pronounce it but i think it was related to uh, an anime series and but i also still haven't seen porco rosso which I, I didn't realize was his film until i was looking it up but other than that i've seen all of his feature-length films not his shorts so what's your um background with studio ghibli and with miyazaki's films i guess i could start again <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I i'm sorry to say i do not have that much to speak of in terms of a background. I think I've seen uh, the cat bus with testicles one. Uh, what was that? My Neighbor, uh, my neighbor Totoro. <laughs> my Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I've seen that. I think I've seen Spirit, Spirit Away like a very long time ago. I uh, definitely seen Princess Mononoke because I saw it yesterday and then probably twice before. Um and then uh, I watched Howl's Within Castle with you, Kate, a few years back. Yeah, you did. These were the first Miyazaki movies I had seen. Like, even before I was, like, in the anime, I wanted to. I wanted to, like, dig into those. And I saw all their, like, uh, Ghost in the Shell and Akira, like, long ago, just because I knew they were, like, big movies. And I always meant to see, you know, Totoro or Spirited Away and just kind of never got around to it. And then when I was trying to... Get, really fell down the the otaku hole and started watching tons of anime. I it was just fewer movies mixed in, so I watched Mononoke and this and Nausicaa this week, and they were my first Miyazaki movie. Really? Wow! Yeah. Really? So not even Spirited not Away yet. I'm planning to. I had a friend who made me a like like a one of the soot sprites from Spirited Away as like a Christmas gift because we're on the same coal related project, and I was like, oh, I should watch this now that I have mm-hmm. this thing. It still hasn't gotten around to it. But important ones I watch these. Yeah, yeah, that is a little bit important. <laughs> and Brian, what about you? I think I talked about it in during our discussion of Grave of the Fireflies. I remember seeing Spirited Away on Cartoon Network as a kid, but I I wasn't into anime. Actually, a lot of anime turned me off. I used to hate when like Dragon Ball Z came on as a child, like real late at night. For those younger audience that don't know. We really didn't have much of a choice when it came about late night with cable television. You just had to watch what was on or go to sleep. Uh, so like even seeing anime, I kind of just turned turn my head to it. And I don't know, like I know when I got into anime later. And then I heard about Studio Ghibli and I heard about how great their films were. And I started out with Spirited Away as well. I uh, just had a, some friends that got me into anime were telling me about it. So I watched Spirit Away, then I watched Princess, Princess Mononoke, and then I watched some other ones here and there. I still haven't finished the complete collection. There was actually a time where I tried to complete the whole collection. My friend and I, we were going to have a Studio Ghibli Marathon when I came back for the first time from the Army. 
Uh, fun fact, how that actually ended up turning into one of our now famous movie marathons known as the Swank Alexander All-Nighter Movie Marathons, which we've had every time that I've been home except for one time between Caitlin and the elusive Coleman being the core members of that. Uh, we started with the Studio Ghibli films and then we kind of just started branching off and watching just other films throughout the night. And then uh, just throughout the years, we started adding things to it, but it wasn't until like the second time that we started doing the whole picking from the hat and just watching movies all night. Uh, so it's kind of weird how, yeah, it started out as a Studio Ghibli film. So we call that the Sam Zero, the Swank Alexander on Under Movie Marathon, the pioneer one. Uh, not saying that the Studio Ghibli Marathon can't be marathon, but it was just it was just weird how that how that came about. Now, I love the Studio Ghibli films. I try to at least watch one every now and then to one day complete the collection because I'm always surprised by them. Every time that I watch them, I always hate myself for putting them off for so long. Yeah, I still need to work through uh, a lot of the non-Miyazaki films. I still have a lot of Aizawa Takahata's I want to watch and a lot of Goro Miyazaki's that I need to watch as well. We are talking a lot about Studio Ghibli right now. It sounds like I'm kind of a Ghibli expert. I think at least I've been with it the longest because like I said, I kind of grew up on it. So we are talking a lot about Studio Ghibli, but as I mentioned, this is a film, Nausicaa is a film that predates Ghibli itself. Studio Ghibli was founded in 1985, and Nausicaa was released in 1984, so it was the year prior. But this is considered by many to be the first Studio Ghibli film, as key members of Studio Ghibli were involved in this, with Miyazaki directing, of course, but also with Aizawa Takahata as the producer, and Toshio Suzuki, heavily involved in production as well, who later served as producer for several other Ghibli films and was president of Studio Ghibli until 2008. The three of them really make up the founders of Studio Ghibli as a whole, so it's easy to see why this is considered to be the first honorary Ghibli release, even though the first film officially under the name was Castle in the Sky. So I chose this film to watch for podcast because it does have a very strong environmental message. We have Earth Day coming up. It was highly praised and presented by the World Wildlife Fund at its release, and it's frequently listed in Best Japanese Animated Films of All Time in several lists, and it's number 14 according to IMBD. I think it was received better critically internationally than in the U.S., but that makes sense because when it was first released here, the distributor, the Western distributor, cut like half an hour of footage, it mistranslated lines, and it falsely advertised the film to feature more of the male protagonist. It was also renamed to Warriors of the Wind instead of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And this is kind of why you hear some of the infamous Katana incident, which, Bryant, do you want to tell them about the Katana incident? Yes, and this is just a rumor. Uh, so when they it's not a rumor it's not a rumor rumor. i heard that it was possibly a rumor it's not a rumor so there is a rumor but then it got corrected by miyazaki but it is true so when they were going to go ahead and give their next film which i believe was princess mononoke to the u.s the weinstein companies were the first to jump on it the miyazaki production company what they did is they sent a katana to the weinstein company with a note attached to it saying no cuts uh because yeah, after how badly Nausicaa of the Wind was cut, they never wanted to have that done again to where the Miyazaki company even had a no-cut policy. It wasn't until later the Disney company, they made a deal with them, and what, part of the deal was that they were not going to cut their films at all. And the big issue with the film being cut, it wasn't just so that they did it because they wanted to appeal to the American audience, but the real issue came about when 
the basically the theme of the movie was cut. Like the whole saving the environment and listening to nature was cut from the film. And it was just this battle against nature is what it depicted instead. So it was completely opposite to what the theme of the movie truly was. And it wasn't just that they were focusing on male protagonists. In the actual promotion poster of Warrior of the Wind, they had male protagonists that don't even exist in the movie up front on the poster. So they they just butchered this film. It wasn't even a nice cut or anything. It wasn't to somewhat appeal to American audience. No, they cut 30 minutes worth of this film out and made it into something completely disrespectful to what it truly was about. Yeah, so when I say this wasn't rumored, there was originally a rumor that it was Miyazaki himself who sent the katana, but being the pacifist that he is, that is not what he did, and he went on to clarify that it was actually Toshio Suzuki who was the producer at the time for Mononoke who sent them the katana. I guess he's not quite the same of a pacifist as Miyazaki is. Yes, and you know, we talk a lot about, or at least in private, we talk a lot about Disney and aren't always the truest company, it seems, but... I mean, they, they have history of doing the right thing, and it's a good thing because a lot of movies were getting delayed to the American audience because they distributors wanted to cut the film for the West, and luckily Disney came in and said, no, we'll go ahead and send the film as is, and Princess Mononoke was that first one to come out uncut, and the American audience loved it. Granted, I think more recently there is some more, I don't want to say beef, but... Disney's no longer in charge of distributing these. It now has gone to um, Warner. Is that who is in charge of HBO? But so Ghibli has cut ties with Disney since then. But I do think that Disney definitely was a a good thing for them back then. Yeah, and it's funny because Studio Ghibli is usually compared to Walt Disney or to the the Disney company. They're known as the the Japanese Disney, uh, which I'll get in later with this movie. It's funny because actually they kind of subvert a lot of themes that we see in Disney in this movie here. Is there anything else you uh, or any of you have to say about the critical reception to this film at all? Anything that you might have found or saw? On Rotten Tomato, this does have a, actually even score right down the middle. It's 89% both ways for audience and critics. So everybody agrees with this movie. It's it's an excellent movie. It's a must-see movie. With the IMDb Top 250, it doesn't make the list. However, it does have an 8.0 on IMDb, which does rank the same as like the last 20 films on IMDb. So it's probably just doesn't have as many ratings as the other films on that list or has been pushed out by some of the the new reviewing uh, lobbyists, I'll call them. (laughs) Lobbyists. Craze fans. (laughs) That's a kind word. Yeah. So I want to talk briefly about what influenced this film. Uh, I said before that Dune was an influence for this film, and I think it's pretty obvious to see Dune in this film. But it also had references from other fantasy series, such as Lord of Rings and Tales from Earthsea, which I thought was interesting as Miyazaki's son, Goro, directed a Ghibli film later on, which was an adaptation of Earthsea. So I'm guessing that was probably a... A book that they read together. I don't know. That's just me guessing. <laughs> Nausicaa is also named after a woman in the Odyssey. Uh, she's a character who helps Odysseus along his journey. 
And there's also references from Japanese folklore, uh, including a short story from the 12th century Japan called The Lady Who Loves Insects, about a lady who defies social convention and is fascinated by insects. Yeah, and there was another actual real-life incident that influenced this as well, or at least sparked the inspiration for Miyazaki. And we were talking about before the show, Caitlin, learning actually quite a bit of historical events uh, from this podcast based on these on these movies that I didn't even know about. For instance, the tragedy of Minamata Bay, which occurred in the 50s and the 60s from the Chiso, Chiso, I don't know how to pronounce it, C-H-I-S-S-O, if you want to look it up, corporation. They were dumping menthol mercury into the water uh, for in, in that eventually went into this town and brought about what they call the Minamata disease, which actually should have been named the the Chiso disease because they were the ones that had caused it. But this whole city started getting this new disease because their water supply had been had been polluted in such levels to where even children were being affected decades later on. And it wasn't till decades later, I don't think till like 2004, that the corporation had to pay $87 million dollars. And this took place in the 50s and the 60s. So it was going on for a while. It's effects there were for a while. And they didn't have any consequences until much later in history. And this sparked the inspiration for Miyazaki to develop this film, but not so much to be opposing to the corporation and the people who were polluting, but showing more so how nature takes over after the pollution. Because while this did destroy the water and everything for the humans the fish population it started to explode even in these poisonous waters so yeah we'll pollute the earth and it will of course wipe us out uh fortunately i guess the silver lining nature will still still go on and still attempt to heal itself granted it takes much longer for them to do that than it does to destroy life finds of course a way. you try to bring Jurassic park in this and you know what good job i respect good job <laughs> Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what we saw during quarantine, because I feel like there were some news stories talking about how, like, nature was, like, being harmonious again, and things are going back because we were all in quarantine and not out about destroying the planet. <laughs> Did anyone else see those? I think I've heard about stuff where there's, like, there's a cool six weeks where, like, deer could roam, and then, you know, we came back and ruined everything, you know? <laughs> yeah, basically. I, I would like to see oh, well. the facts of that. I feel like it's possible, but I also feel like... Those are the same people who say one of the phrases that I hate, which is humans are the true virus type deal. And just kind of mm-hmm. always saying that, you know, we're the worst people ever. So it feels like something that would trend on Facebook, but I like to see the statistics. I'm not saying I'm against it or anything. Great. I hope nature, you know, had a good, a good time. I hope they continue <laughs> to have a good time, but sadly we're back. I feel like I also don't trust that that actually happened in the U.S. because I feel like we never really had a true quarantine. <laughs> like, people were always out and about. Other countries, I think they were stricter with it. I worked during the quarantine, and there was definitely less traffic. I That's all I can sort of say. There was definitely less traffic. <laughs> I mean, there were still cars out, you know, to kill deer. <laughs> to, to find and, and consume deer on, on, on the road, but just less of them. Saying there's like a lot of cool like graphics in terms of like smog pollution and the the pictures of like you can see Everest from Kathmandu and stuff like that. But that's all from like Asia where they had actual you know shutdowns. 
here there's probably i know there's yeah. stuff talking about you know co2 levels dropping we like i saw those articles like shared around uh, i have no easy access if i knew no there was an impact of the initial stages of quarantine at least in the u.s in some instances so yeah i definitely do think that a lot of these we do see the historical impact and i think also with a lot of movies that come from Ghibli, I mean, we saw this with Grave of Fireflies, of course, um, there's going to be references to Hiroshima and the destruction that was caused by World War II. And nuclear warfare, I think, for Nausicaa does come into play in Nausicaa, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about um, more of the content itself. But so now I'm curious about how your overall opinion of the film was. You know, this was your first watch. I think this for me was like maybe my third or fourth watch of this film. But I'm curious, you know, how you thought about it for this initial reaction. So I liked it. Um, I was trying to put it in like the perspective of like that 80s animation. So it's like I wasn't trying to think of it in the same way of like, I don't know, okay, would I just watch you days prior, which had like a, another level. Um, like the story is like, it was a slower kind of than you usually see or that I've been used to in terms of like, uh, say American animation, where it's kind of like got to get the kids involved, stuff like that. But also there's probably more of like the time of the era that like Japanese kids could probably sit for, for longer. Generally like the story, like, uh, some of the animation, especially on the ohms was, was pretty good. The only like major critique I had was like, sometimes the music was like, this doesn't seem to fit like at all. <laughs> <laughs> Here, like, like... Yeah, the music was very 80s <laughs> very very 80s very synth some some weird weird choices there <laughs> it was a, it was a product of its time i mean you would literally just say that like you know you would just be like oh man i feel like you know journey is the journey song starting right now <laughs> what's happening <laughs> yeah I'm, as far as the score yeah i agree some of it i was like oh yeah this is uh this is the 80s got the synth guitar out the key, uh, the guitar, whatever it's called. I did like one of the songs, the one where the child was singing. That I thought that was cool and that was fitting. Mm-hmm. And when you first said like it didn't fit, that's the first thing I thought. I was like, no, that actually. And then I started thinking about all the, all the whatever. I forget the, even the name of that. Just the synth, like we said. Synth- synthesizer. Yeah, the synthesizer. That's yeah. I remember that now. I can go next for score. Um, I'm gonna say uh, th- there's a new term. There's a uh, new term I recently learned, which is the word mid, which sort of just means it is of average quality. I would describe this movie as mid. You just now learned this Oh, term. yeah. I just recently learned about mid. Oh, mid. I thought you said nid. Mid. No, no, mid. M-I-D, mid. I would describe this movie as, at least for me personally, as mid. Uh, you want to elaborate no. on that? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it just sort of just sort of concepts of it that were just very basic main character kind of just was had very was very much of mary sue like the the villains were very villainous there was no kind of like they were doing everything just to be very evil like it, it just was like no like not enough nuance for me yeah see i completely disagree on that but i, I want to hear brian's thoughts before kind of did you have anything that. more to add to that connor no, that's it. That's well, it. Well, one, I'm glad to hear somebody else gets what I've been noticing. I don't know if you noticed it, Caitlin, but you do have a new word, which is I totally disagree or I disagree. So I'm glad somebody <laughs> else gets that because that comes with a wave. You, you just know you're about to get it. Yeah, I got to say I'm with Caitlin on this one. I do disagree. I don't know if I like this as much as Caitlin. I know Caitlin and I, we first 
had this discussion about the film because I said Princess Mononoke was one of my favorite or is my favorite Studio Ghibli film. Actually, after watching it the second time, I'm debating that right now. Uh, but one of the things you said is Nausicaa is a better Princess Mononoke. I hadn't watched the film, but I had a feeling this was going to be like our Signs of the Sleep versus Internal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind debate again, mm-hmm. which if you don't know about those two movies, I believe they're made by the same people, most of the same. Yeah, they're both Gondry. Yeah, Bond. and Signs of Sleep predates it, and they both have similar themes, and Eternal Sunshine is the more popular one. It definitely has a more popular cast in it, and we got into some debates about that. I may have called you a hipster. May still seem sit by that. Really? Uh, so I thought that was going to be kind of the same thing with this, but I still went in, of course, with an open mind and also kind of looking at it. I can't even say that I look at these films anymore through the lens of their time because with Grave of the Fireflies, used as the most recent example, it still really much holds up to today's standards. So holding it to today's standards, I have to say the film is still a really good film. I I really did enjoy this film. I'm not saying it's a perfect film, but it's definitely above mid. Uh, so it's another animated film uh, that proves it can be just as impactful uh, as any live action film when it comes to the to the message, just like Grave of the Fireflies. So we won't go into that whole spiel again. Watch that episode if you want to hear us talk more about that. I would say that I really like this world too. You know, the moment it starts out, it's... It's a very tragic and beautiful world because it kind of looks like the whole place is taken over by mold. But in, and I mean like I mean like that fuzzy mold. Yeah, like you know that man. I've been really procrastinating cleaning out my fridge mold. But there's a moment where the character is lying down and she's looking literally through the lens of one of the insects, and it's it looks like snow and it's like snow all around her. So I like that. I just like that contrast between the two. I'll say it's a fun adventure film. I think it does have some holes. I think it does have some flaws. Uh, We may discuss about it more as it comes up and in the spoiler discussion, but I still think overall it has a solid plot. Of course, it has a great theme. I can see why you said we should do this film for Earth Day. It definitely fits for it, and it definitely has a good message about listening to nature and very much how both, not not only how both need to decide together, but how nature is just going to continue to find a way, as you said. I think also, even being for its time and even looking at it now, it subverts a lot of those themes. I know, Connor, you said they, the main character was very Mary Sue and the villains were just being villainous. And I have to disagree with that because even looking at the, the princess, she wasn't just the rebellious princess that we see in a lot of Disney films where I said this subverts and contradicts a lot of Disney films because you see that rebellious princess, the one that doesn't want to be a princess. So she goes out on her own and finds her own adventure and that's kind of the empowerment for her. But no, she runs being a princess. She very much takes care of her people, the kingdom, and that kind of makes her even more of a stronger character, a stronger princess than we usually see, almost even a stronger protagonist than we usually see. And I think when it comes down to the villains as well, yeah, there is one cliche. It's that one smirky guy, the guy that's just uh, trying to think of the term for it. It's another S term, snarky. They're just snarky dude throughout the whole thing. Pretty much a complete tool with a crown on. I don't even know why he was wearing the crown. 
But the other woman in this film, who is actually the antagonist, and I read something that said that she could very well be the protagonist in another film because she did suffer an incident in which she lost her arm and she wants to cleanse the world. That way she can make a new kingdom for her people who are not, not afraid of nature and in fear of these insects. And I can very much see that. I think this is something that can be developed more. I think some things were cut out and I can understand, but maybe with a little bit more runtime or taking out some things, it could have been explored more. I'm actually interested to read the manga to see how these characters were more developed. But I think a lot of them were very interesting. Even now, even putting in his time, you see the male protagonist in a lot of these films. This one, he actually is more like the sidekick. He's not the Prince Charming or anything, even though he somehow takes out a whole warship crew with a single gunnership which I don't understand one of my holes in this movie but even he's kind of made to be the sidekick and even he's looking up uh to this to this young woman and again she's she's not strong just because she goes out and she can she knows how to hold a sword and she's just rushing in battle but she's just very controlled as well with her own emotions and making sure she stays as the leader figure so I think there's a lot to this film. I really did enjoy it. It's not perfect, but it is still a, a great film. And you know, it, I can see why people say this is one of the top anime films out there. Just as a note, this is our spoiler-free section. We will get into our classified part of the podcast a little bit later. We'll give you a warning when we get to that. I was just about <laughs> to spoil it, too. I do give my general, like, overall, like, uh, like it. especially uh, you brought up, like, the, the scenes in, like, a sea of decay. Like, I think those were not only, like, just really beautiful, but, like, the creativity that goes into like, creatures and, like, see that later of, you know, Miyazaki's movie. Um, like, it reminded me a lot of, like, the stuff from, like, Made in Abyss or even, like, the tone early on when it's just Nausicaa in, like, The Sea of Decay. There's another show called Girls Last Tour um, where it's way more industrial, but that same kind of everything's kind of falling apart and humanity is like as is like shown in that show is basically humanity's on its last legs it's way more you know humanity here in, in nausicaa but i think that's a an aesthetic that i really like i thought that was very i also think uh it wasn't like they're not the like the roundest characters in the world but i think there there's some roundness to them they're they're spherical enough um especially like um uh, as brian was saying with like Nausicaa showing her strength as like a leader more than you know someone wielding weapons I think that's a that's a nice aspect to it but even the was I'm trying to ajit the the town of the other little guy the guy in the gunnership how they oh, now I'm getting the spoilers aren't I yeah I think the characters are round is what I'm saying in the nice spoiler free way pretty, pretty <laughs> round you know would you say they're they were uh, I, they're they're more ovular they're more <laughs> I think that's a word, but they're they're closer to oval than it full sphere than a full like oh man that's a real sphere there. But they're they're ovally enough. They're they're pretty egg shaped. Uh, I'd like to say that I knew going in this this was uh, I I was the only person with this opinion and I was perfectly okay with this because there needs to be a dark horse. There needs to be I need to be the villain of this pod, of this this episode. I am perfectly okay with doing. Wait, that. did you watch the the uncut version? Let's. How long did it take you to finish this movie? I watched it with Kate. I was sitting right next oh, okay. to her. Oh, okay. All right. So you watched the full two hours. 
it was uh, it was the legit I watched version. The American the version. version. I, I watched the Warriors <laughs> of the Wind. That would be hilarious. <laughs> that would be hilarious. That would be incredible. Okay, I really kind of want to see this one because I don't know how you make. I also a do. Movie I also with do. like a like because the male protagonist, the male protagonist, male characters are like very minor. I don't know how you could turn either one of like the two or three into like a real lead. Um, I'm just curious from a yeah, technical aspect. How did they do that? Like I said, even on the poster, they knew they didn't have enough male protagonists because they just made up some, literally, and put it up on the poster. <laughs> I'm really hoping they were like, it was bad, too. Like, it was just the regular characters and then, like, Luke and the third, just front and center on the poster. <laughs> uh, I would like, I will say one positive thing is, and that's sort of adding on to what other people have said, I really like the sort of the aesthetic of the, of like the decaying biome kind of thing. I thought that was really cool. And it all just like had a really just, cool sort of interesting unique look to it it's for being basically this like zone of death it had a lot of life to it which is yeah had a cool kind of i don't know what the right the right right word is like dichotomy sort of you know uh uh cognitive dissonance (laughs) (laughs) cognitive dissonance (laughs) no i know it's uh the juxtaposition of the yeah decay and the desert and everything else yeah I, i know what you mean and so, when we you talked about Nausicaa, I know you had mentioned when we watched it that you thought that she was a Mary Sue, and and I can understand where you're coming from. I don't particularly like the term Mary Sue because I don't think there's a that's the an equal term for male characters, unless you want to talk about like the chosen one. Gary trope. Stu. It's a. Ga- I don't. I don't think that's a real thing. It's a Gary Stu. I've literally heard this. this. Is not missing me. I just. I've never heard that ever in conversation. I've heard Mary Sue so much, but never a Gary. Mary Sue, Sue. is a Gary Stu. It, that, but I guess if you talk about like chosen one tropes, I think a lot of fantasy has that with male characters, and and so I I think I see where you're coming from because there are some things that she does. It's a little little outlandish. It's like okay, yeah, she, she just like kind of stood like there and stopped inside that in, in the house, just like with like a cane or whatever she had. <laughs> Well, see, I like that moment. I like that moment. And I see, like, when we talk about her as a complex character, so I like what Bryant said, that she kind of was a monarch to her people. She wasn't the, the normal princess who doesn't, who just kind of whines and wants to be free and do her own thing. Like, I think there was a scene where something's happening and her people come and wake her up instead of her father when things are going down because her father's sick. Yeah. She's the one who's really in charge and she's the one who has to respond to these kind of situations for her people. So I really liked that aspect to it. I like that she was a scientist. Um, I like that she was just kind of running experiments and stuff and learning from this sea of decay. And I like that she was a pacifist but she was also full of rage and she talks about her rage being something that scared her and i don't think that the film fully went into this as much as i would have liked but these type of characters i do do genuinely like the ones that do wrestle a lot with their rage and their anger but they still kind of have to tame it down to be that kind of pacifist kind of person so I thought that was interesting with her if we're talking about her like complexities, but I do see understand where you're coming from because some of the things that she did were a little little much. <laughs> she just kind of stood there and people were like, oh, she looks like our princess from Pajit. I'm not going to shoot her. <laughs> but she did get, she, yeah, so she did have some adversities, but yeah, but I, I understand where you're coming from, but I do like Nausicaa as a character. I, was just, I, mean, I don't like dislike her as like a character. I just think that she... 
they could have made her less perfect. <laughs> That's just sort of you know. There could have been more. There could have been more. There could have been like you said. There you also said that you know. There's things, the aspects that you think they could have you know expanded on a little bit more. That would have you know mm-hmm. been better. I th- I agree with you 100 percent on that. And I think yeah, she is she is a bit perfect. She is kind of a perfect princess. She can kind of, she can kind of do everything. And but I would say that she does struggle throughout the film just kind of it's more of an external struggle i would kind of i'm not calling her superman i'm really talking about like the literal character of superman he is this perfect being and it's kind of those moments where he's actually being stopped and being halted in his his efforts that are more of the that are more of the rising moments in their stories now to for your mary sue there is a male equivalent uh, the male equivalent is known as Gary Stew, Marty Stew, or Larry Stew. It's probably because it's more known in the fan fiction realm because the term originates from a Star Trek fan fiction where the fan-made character was introduced <laughs> as a parody of similar stories of the time. Yeah, Interesting, a fun okay. But I do like those those same characters that you like, Caitlin, where they kind of struggle with what they you know, of the hero that they're known to be. And I do wish the film did explore that a little bit more when she does say that, hey, I'm afraid of myself. It kind of, it reminds me of Game of Thrones and it's something that I wish they also explored a little bit more. And that's with Jon Snow. He says a line in which uh, he says he's just tired. Like, he's like, I'm just tired. I was like, I don't care what you guys do. Like, I'm just, I'm just done. Though he goes on and does a bunch more things. So that's why I was like, I wish they really did more with that, just like this character as well. I really do like the the imagery in this film as well, the post-apocalyptic imagery. And I like the costumes better in this film because it's really a mix between like medieval wear and like Japanese wartime industrial type of wear. And so I thought that that together made an interesting kind of look, kind of aesthetic. And I think it really helped build the world a yeah, bit. Yeah, I like that too. I took notice of that, how it's kind of, they have these different worlds. They have the, you know, the the nonfiction and the fiction in there, and then they have the technology as well. You have guns and you have swords, but then you also have tanks. And now thinking about it, it reminds me of the Lupin the Third Castle of Crystal. That's the only Lupin movie I've actually I've, I've seen, which Miyazaki had done work for as well. So that's probably where this got mm-hmm. that inspiration. That was his first uh, film, the one of them I said that I hadn't seen earlier. Is the C- Castle of O something? It was, was it the Castle of Crystal or was it another castle? No, it starts How with an O. How many castles does it go? It starts with an O. I- I'm not going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> no, I do like that. Uh, yeah, the aesthetic was great. They actually used 260 uh, colors for this film, which is impressive because there's only seven colors in the rainbow. Uh, but I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Horrible joke, but that's because I couldn't find any context. I found that fun fact like three times. I could not find any context for how many colors are used in the original film. So I was like, I, I guess that's cool. Is it's from what I read, this is a simplistic look, but they do a lot with it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see like modern movies how much colors they tend to use because I think it was close to being on par, which is impressive if that's the case. For a movie of yeah, they said CGI or CG when they went that route with animation, it blows it out of the water. But that's that's expected. Uh, okay, that makes sense. I think another interesting thing is you talked earlier about 
you know, felon warships and everything. And we kind of joked, me and Connor, that the warships were made of ceramic. Everything is, is that what it was? Their, ceramic. Their, their yeah. armor was ceramic, and then their, their <laughs> giant planes, which just got shot down by every other plane, we assumed was also made out of ceramic. So they just had like pottery strapped to their the sides of their ships, and it was just a disaster. Those ships couldn't. Yeah, because at one point I don't know up. if it's the. Yeah, because at one point, I don't know if it was just the um, subtitles, but she said that her sword was a ceramic sword, and then Yupa, another character, he had a sword that was made out of, like, insect skeletons, I guess. So they really were just using what they had to to make these weapons, which I thought was an interesting take. I don't know if it's altogether realistic, and I don't think it works for the ships, but but it was an interesting take that they were scrounging up what they I could. I thought that was interesting, too. It reminds me a lot of Dune, the knife. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the movie, in the book, they make a big deal out of it, too, that they're, I believe it's the cyst knife, and it's this very valuable knife that's passed on to people because it can cut through anything, and it's made out of the sandworms, the, the big creature that the book is known for, much like this movie is known for the ohms, that knife was created from the ohms. The funny thing I found about that knife, however, is that when he's talking about that knife can cut through anything, he literally has it underneath the dude's helmet. So I'm like, I don't think you need any kind of special knife if it was right up on the dude's neck. If you have a butter knife underneath his ne- underneath his helmet, it's pretty much done. But yeah, the warships, that scene kind of bothered me i felt like it took some tension out because at first you see these huge warships you're like oh that's one you're not expecting to see a huge warship with the world that we've been introduced to so far so to see that they have a whole fleet of them it's crazy but then this single gunner comes in and just annihilates them as if like they hid all their explosives in the weak points of their ship and then covered it in cardboard and he just knew exactly where to shoot Shouldn't have made them out of paper mache. They, they they knew better. They shouldn't have made those warships out of paper mache. But uh, <laughs> one kooky scientist just suggested it, and they went with it. Those ships, yeah, those ships just like just like fell apart so fast. Because they were known as the War Nation, and I think that's where the film kind of I don't want to say fails because it's not really a failure. It's a very small complaint. I think the scale is a bit small when it comes to hey, there's this war kingdom out there. This and you know they're they're the kingdom that is inspired by war. They're led by war. That's what their decisions are made upon. But then we see their army, and it's like a platoon size. Or you see their warships get taken out by one gunner. It's like how did you guys even take over the city if one of their people can take out their thing? And then they also yeah they have this big plot to take out the army. But again, it's like do you do you need that? Is that necessary right now? With what you've just proven that you can do? One 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 small red plane is all it takes. <laughs> I think that warship scene, I think I get what I think they're trying to do in principle. I think execution was kind of lacking. Because I think one of the things I liked about the warships is how they looked very like beat up and run down and like taped together is the wrong way to say it. But they looked like these are things that are like inches away from like falling out of the sky, which kind of I think ties into the... Uh, it's a, a slapdash society of like, yeah, they're the best, but they're the best because they can put the best bucket of bolts together. And the fact that a well-constructed warplane can shoot them down, I think that's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, it does come across like you hit him in the windshield and then the whole thing 
just blows up and crashes. I think does look kind of silly, but I like the idea of it, and I like the like how easily defeated the warships were because I think they put in that effort to make them look kind of. I don't want to say slapdash twice in a row. I should pick up your thesaurus. But yeah, slapdash. <laughs> I think they had a strong, like, ground army. Yeah, they at did. At least. I think that's where they're, they're, they were winning there. I think maybe they did all the work when they took over <laughs> that one country. Yeah, I think it would have been cool, too, if they were known to be this war kingdom and they kept up this front that, hey, we're still this big, scary threat. But honestly, actually, our whole place got destroyed and insects ran over us. And we're just building things together. And we built these big ships to seem intimidating. But really, we got nothing behind it. Very much like a guy with a lifted truck getting stuck in the snow. <laughs> yeah, that's a actually great analogy. So is there anything else as far as the animation goes, not the plot, but just the animation itself that you guys noted or had any comments you wanted to make on? Uh, I think Capo mentioned this earlier, but I love the, like, like the, 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 the ohms, like, scoots their little, like, their, their armor sort of, you know, sort of expanding and contracting into each other. I love how they moved. I thought it was very, very... It was visually pleasing, I guess I could put it that way. It was visually pleasing. Um, cause, yeah, because I was like, it's one of those things about, like, can you see, like, those older anime where it's like, yeah, the, like, the characters look a little flatter, but you'll get these, like, super detailed, like, little, like, mechanical things. Like, they're, the scooty mouths or, like, their armor is kind of shimmering. Or, like, when the um, the big fly is, like, taking off and you can kind of see it taking off. It's like, there's a scene in, like, uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes where, like, Things are just being, like, screwed in and bolts, but it's, like, so detailed and you don't really see those details in, like, modern anime because they'll either, like, CGI it or just kind of omit it. But it's, like, it's really, like, is gratifying to see. It's, like, seeing something, like, perfectly come <laughs> together. Uh, but, yeah, I like that aspect of it. And, the, and it's in Princess Mononoke, too, but I like I really like that in this. I like the, the flashback animation. They did something a little bit different with it. And, you know, you... It kind of had that dream aesthetic that a lot of flashbacks usually have, whether it's live anim- live action or animation. But here they did that, but they added a little bit something else to it. And I like that. All right, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the influence that this film had. And because of its influence on Ghibli as a whole, it, it's widely considered to have changed the face of animation as a whole. It definitely had a strong influence on Ghibli. It mapped out several themes and visuals that would be seen in Miyazaki films to come. You have that young girl protagonist. You have the mixture of different aesthetics. You got fantasy creatures and subversive monsters. You got themes of nature. You have anti-war and non-violent messages and flying sequences in airplanes because Miyazaki loves his airplanes. Studio Ghibli's name itself comes from the Arabic name for Hot Sahara Wind because the founders wanted to blow new wind through the anime industry, and Ghibli is also the name of an Italian warplane. And like I said, Miyazaki has a great love for planes and flight, and it's moved obviously in his last and final, I'll put that in quotation marks, uh, film, The Wind Rises. But so you can see how much Nausicaa had a part to play in Ghibli as a whole. It also had influence in several different video games. Most notably, the Horse Claws creatures were cited as a direct influence on the Chocobos in Final Fantasy. Um, it has some other video game influence as well. I know, Connor, you had something to say about that, but I, I'd want to go ahead and go back to Brian because I know you had something to say about the animation particular being influenced. Yes. So one of the animations that I really liked, and it kind of reminded me of some, just a lot of Japanese monsters, 
uh, was the god in this film. There's a certain godlike figure in this movie, and it was animated by. Damn, I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce his name. Uh, you're talking about the one who did Neon Ben. Uh, yeah, Evangelion. I wrote his name down. Uh, Hidekiano. Hidekiano. Yeah. Hidekiano. Yeah. Hidekiano. Animator for that portion yes. for the god when it's revealed. Ano. He went on to make one of the most famous animes out there, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is a great anime. And that anime also has these giant godlike creatures, or as they're referred to in the anime, angels. And you can see that, granted, he influenced himself, but you can see that how this originated and how he pulled it over into his own anime. Yeah, and as a note, uh, that same animator, Hidaki Ano, he also wrote a short that went on to be Ghibli's first live-action film called The Giant God Warrior, appears in Tokyo in, was it in 2021 it came out? No, was it recently? no, 2017. I don't know why I put 2021 in my notes, but it came out uh, then and it serves as a prequel. To yeah, and I just had actually finished watching that film before we started recording. Literally the last thing that I did. And yeah, it's a good, it's a good prequel. It's not anything like amazing technical feat, but it's interesting to watch. It's only 10 minutes and it shows how these gods just came in and just annihilated the planet or in this sense, a model town. But kind of showing the moments of like the care is what's more important is what the characters or the character is saying during these moments, how this God came down and how humans had their turn on the planet and they did all this for only it to be destroyed just as fast as it was created. So what are some other things that you think Nausicaa influence? Uh, Connor, I know that you had noted a couple of things while we were watching the film. Okay. The, um, the, uh, the, what was she? Like a queen? The, the redhead. Yes. Uh, her name, I just had it with Kushana. Kush, what is it? What is it? Kushana? 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 K-U-S-H-A. She was another princess. Yeah. Kushana, uh, the... There's a game that has been sweeping my life past few past few weeks, which is Elden Ring. And one of the like demigods, late game bosses of this of this game is literally a redhead woman with golden prosthetics that look big, like, and it's literally like one arm and two legs that are just golden, just like this uh, this woman. And it just it's it's kind of hard to not see similarities in all honesty. You said that the Sea of Decay also... Oh, yeah, Sea of Decay also looks very similar to, like, this one region in the game called Kaled. It has those kind of weird kind of, like... Like, um, Brian described it as sort of, like, like uh, mold. Yeah, it has... There's, there's a lot of areas that have, like, giant moldy buildups around it. Yeah, there's just sort of a... Just a weird, you know... With, with the different the difference in time, I was sort of wasn't ever expecting to just be like, oh, this this movie I've never seen before, and there's all these weird links with this game that just came out, you know, two months ago. It's very it was just very interesting for me to watch, you know, watching this after after having played the game. Yes, and I've that game has also taken over my life for the most part. <laughs> I love it. I haven't made it to that late game boss, but I've seen some clips, and she's actually on a lot of the promotional art. As well, and I can see the similarities there as well. Uh, also, with the place Khaled, which has been taken over by what they call in the game Scarlet Rot, and the whole place is rotting away. Actually, that game just has a lot of 
real artistic settings that they've probably been inspired by anime as well. Maybe even Studio Ghibli when it comes to a lot of their more fictional apocalyptic settings and its giant monsters or creatures. Also, uh, fun fact, uh, both the directors have are, are named Miyazaki. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> but that. That's all I got for my, my Elden Ring spiel. What about, like, in anime, like, that you've seen? Do you think that there is anything that might have taken from Nausicaa at all, that you saw some parallels? Um, Capo mentioned Girls' Last Tour, and I thought about that, like coming into this like a bit a little bit of that like oh this kind of a similar feel of like it, it's been like a, like the world has sort of already ended and there's just sort of like little pocket civilizations that are left and it, it sort of has a similar feel it, if the world was it was was more mechanical and less sort of you know like if the world ended in a state where it was much more mechanically built up i think it would be like almost like exactly the same basically, as Girls' Last Tour. And, like, the, the creatures in the Sea of Decay, I guess all the creatures, like, I, you see kind of, like, those similarities. Uh, like, I mentioned Maiden Abyss. Uh, the one where they're um, mm. getting chased, like, after um, the guy, I guess the protagonist in the U.S. version, um, is, like, falling and Nausicaa's chasing him, and there's the giant flying kind of dragon fly thing. Um, thought that looked a lot like the stuff from, like, Tower of God. Um, and, you know, just these kind of, like, larger bug-like multi-wind creatures. Um, I can't say those things didn't exist before, because it's now, like, one of the older animes that I've seen. But it is something that directly reminded me of. I can, de- I can definitely <laughs> I like see- that you said that the protagonist in the U.S. version. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought that was very funny. But um, I can definitely see the Made in Abyss connection, too, like, with the creature design. Because there is some wacky sort of bug designs giant monster bug designs in that anime yeah i got some akira feels when they were showing the the god when it was in its cocoon i guess it just kind of had this fleshy bubbling artery animation to it where it was like even pulsating like a heart and that reminded me a lot of akira towards the end when this don't want to spoil it and Caitlin, I know that's going to be one of our episodes later on, but you, you may see it as well when we watch that movie. Capo and I both just like vigorously nodded when you when you mentioned Akira, I, like because like you, I didn't think about it until you said it, but like that's you were exactly correct. And I, I'm Capo, I think you feel the yeah, same way. Very like especially that like scene where it's like in its little like egg. Um, I think the gods total because you see them in like the especially in the beginning where they're like destroying society and like the first thing I thought of was like Attack on Titan, <laughs> like <laughs> just the just the giant figures posted against like crumbling society. I was like crumbling, crumbling. <laughs> uh, there is that anime that actually just finished. I, I uh, it's it's gone in my head. Uh, Kappa, what's the anime that you did not finish uh, last oh, season? Oh, uh, Sabuki Bisco. Uh, uh, yes, that Sabukui Bisco. We're <laughs> we're just gonna go off the fly. Uh. Sabakui Bisco, but I do get what he's talking about. I didn't see the end, but in that society, there is, uh, the society is, like, crumbling by, like, rust, and to get rid of the rust, or as society thought causes the rust, is, like, mushrooms and spores and fungus. So I also thought about that connection, but I didn't want to make it, because I only saw, like, three, four episodes of that show. 
Um, also, giant crabs that go crawly crawly. Um, so yeah, that, I don't know why I didn't make this connection faster or more. <laughs> do they go? Do they go crawly crawly though? Is that the sound cra- as crabs <laughs> yeah. make when they move? Very, very oh. audible. Crawly crawly, crawly crawly. You know, you know it's crab season down at the Delaware beaches, or you just like wake up in the morning, you're crawly 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 crawly. Like, oh, <laughs> crabs are at it again. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely saw that for Yvonne Galleon. I don't know if that's the first one to do it, but yeah, that that beam that they have is you know is, is famous in that in that show. And yeah, it's no surprise that it has the same animator. So I don't have an anime that was influenced, but I do have another movie, a very popular movie that is shown to have parallels, and that's Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Uh, Nausicaa has been often compared to Rey. They do have a lot of similarities. And there's also the mix of the medieval and the sci-fi with the outfits, you know. There's the capes. You got Captain Phasma there, our knight in shining armor. She's very similar to our one golden kind of princess in Nausicaa. So there are definitely parallels there. I don't know if it really truly was a direct influence, but we also do see that Star Wars obviously does have a lot of anime that goes into influencing Star Wars as a whole. So it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of that came from Nausicaa. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's the opposite, where they had to edit in new male characters to the poster. They'd edit out uh, Finn on the like the Asian posters. <laughs> yeah. one in return. Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is funny how Disney started doing stuff to their own films that Miyazaki didn't want done to his films when they came over this side. And Disney was like, oh, but we have no problem cutting out. China, what do you want cut? Just let us know. Let's send it over. Mm-hmm. Yep. Finn, not a fan. Neither are yep. we. Neither are we. I don't know what J.J. Abrams was thinking. <laughs> no. I know. This is one of the most wasted. I like Finn. Anyway, another topic. Finn was great. Release the J.J. cut. <laughs> Who would you recommend this movie to overall? Is this someone that you would only recommend to anime watchers? Would you recommend it to cinephiles, Ghibli fans only, or would you recommend it to overall a mainstream audience? I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'll start actually, and I say I, I'd recommend this to anyone. Like, even though I don't personally like it, I think I'm just like a like a being a grumpy human being in general, and just nitpicking <laughs> a bit. I, I would definitely recommend this to people. Like, I'd have no problem with doing that. Yeah, I'd probably recommend it to people. I'd probably uh, like aim it more towards like a general audience and say I, I don't really yeah. know a lot of people that like watch anime. Um, and if I do, I'm probably going with like the the bigger hits of like my anime favorites before I get to it. Unless there was someone who's like, I wanted like an environmental anime, then I'd be like, I've got like four or five for you. But it would probably be still around four or five. Mm-hmm. But I think this would be an easier anime to get into for like a general audience because of I don't know, I feel it's like it's a softer like lean into like some of the weird stuff. Like it's different if like oh here's a bus with like a cat bus with multiple legs versus like i think anyone can like conceive of giant creepy bugs and it doesn't come off as like the weirdest thing i feel like this this could be a good like intro anime for for people so i feel like this is more towards like general audiences than like you know i've seen all the fate stuff but what else you got (laughs) yeah i would recommend this for general audience and cinephiles and everyone in between i think with the general audience this is a enjoyable, solid film. Now, much of the people that like, just kind of your, not saying this is the average adventure film, but 
if you like the average adventure film, if you like those Disney movies, then I don't see why you wouldn't like this movie as well. And as far as the cinephiles, there's a lot to take in from this movie, from the art to it, to the story, to the characters, to the, the time that it was made and what came about it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. I think that a lot of the mainstream audience can, can gain something from this. The only thing that held me back a little bit was just the music because it's a little dated and sometimes it is harder to get people into things that feel a bit more dated. But I do agree that I think it is. It's a fun movie and it's not overly complicated. So I think that many people will enjoy it. I wonder if the American version has a different soundtrack. Like if it's Motley Crue playing during the spots. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! And they will have to watch the American version. <laughs> we have to get. We have to watch a dub too. Just a dubbed with like Motley Crue playing. Oh, my god. oh it's gonna be so. It's gonna be so. With good. Shia LaBeouf. Oh, with Shia LaBeouf. With Shia LaBeouf yes. <laughs> yes. I actually yes. watched the dub. I watched. Who was Shia? How was it? Was it was actually good. Uh, so for for movies, I don't have an issue watching dub. And like I think I've watched most Studio Ghibli films in dub. I watched Grave of the Fireflies sub, but I don't know, I don't have an issue when it comes to the dub. Shia LaBeouf wasn't bad. This is when he was younger. Not saying like he would be crazy now if he was doing voice acting, but his voice acting it did take me out for a minute because I was like that's that's Shia LaBeouf. But then uh, I was I was with it, and the voice acting was good. Yeah, usually in the movies it's not bad. Yeah, I think when I. Yeah, I think when I first watched this movie, I watched it with the dub, but then I did watch the subs this last time, but I, I couldn't remember. The voice actors are not quite as iconic. Like, Howl's Moving Castle, I do like watching the dub because I like hearing the Christian Bale voice. <laughs> I think he does a really good job. I think there's good voice actors in a lot of the Ghibli films for the uh, dub version. Other films, other anime films, I'm going to watch the sub, but Ghibli, just because that's how I grew up when I was a child, I didn't watch the subs, I watched the dubs, so. There, this is a uh, funny side note. Uh, yesterday, when uh, Kate and I were watching Princess Mononoke, th- there is, like, the, um, like, the the monk character, and I, like, and I, like, and I sort of lean over to Caitlin while we're watching it and goes, is that Nicolas Cage? He's like, yeah, I think that's Nicolas Cage. It was not Nicolas Cage. It was Billy Bob Thornton. We were both... It sounded I, just like Nicolas Cage, though. It sounded very similar to Nicolas Cage. We were uh, we were both convinced. I am, like, fine with anime dubs just in general. Like, it's rare that I'll find one. Like, if... Especially if it's, like, releasing, I watch it sub, and then if I like the show, I'll usually go back and watch it dubbed. Or if I'm watching an old show, I'll watch it dubbed, and I don't have a problem with it. I watched Princess Mononoke dubbed, and that Billy Bob Thornton character, I was like, this just seems so out of place. <laughs> like, this, it, that's the reason I watched Nausicaa subbed, is because I was like, I can't, I can't take this Billy Bob Thornton. What if he, what if he's back? What if he comes back? What if Billy comes back again? Like, it just... <laughs> It was just so, like, it didn't seem to fit the character, and it just also, like, feel, felt, like, stilted and out of place. Like, I guess it's more older anime that's a bigger problem, where it just, like, his voice didn't seem to, like, fit in, like, literally with the other characters. But I was like... It was very funny. No. He sounded like a guy reading lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. Mononoke, I think, is one that I did watch sub originally for the first time. So I was a little off when we watched the movie. I didn't know it was going to be dubbed. I was like, I'm watching an anime. And then I just like, it's just, you know, (laughs) uh, you're you're beautiful. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it it did take me off guard too because I I didn't realize it was going to be dubbed. But it was still good. It was still fine. And they had good voice actors for the dub uh, of Nausicaa because they had 
Patrick Stewart, Uma Thurman, like you said, Shia LaBeouf, and they had Mark Hamill, who we all know is surprisingly a great voice Mm -hmm. actor. A lot of people will forget. Of course, he's famous for Joker. And I actually, like I knew about Shia LaBeouf before even going in. I'm not sure if I would have noticed without knowing that. But as far as the other voice actors, I didn't know until I looked it up later. And then thinking about it, I was like, okay, I can hear their voice there. But I I think also with these movies and kind of back then when it came to animation, it wasn't that you just had to use your voice, your your well-known voice, which is a current uh, topic of issue, such as Chris Pratt being Mario and a lot of animation now, just getting your <laughs> popular actors just to use their voice because that's recognizable. But I think back then, even if you were a recognizable actor or actress, you were to use a a different voice. You were to be a voice actor. Someone should have told that to Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, I'll have to see the <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton. I don't know about that. It's really, me on that. It's really funny because like other people, like the person who was, uh, what's the main character's name of Princess Mononoke? I literally cannot. I don't know. I don't even know who Princess Mononoke is. In the film, San? San? Is, I mean, I know it's San, but I don't know where the Princess Mononoke title comes Either from. Either way, the main character actually like had like a really, <laughs> I thought his voice acting was really good in like a really weird way because it was really kind of like a boring voice acting, which like kind of worked in its weird way. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Like, um, the, the game Silent Hill 2 is known for having sort of weird, weirdly stilted voice acting that just kind of works. And I kind of feel like the main, you know, the main character the dubbing for the main character of in Princess Mononoke also had that sort of stilted, but it still works kind of sound to him. So we're definitely divulging a bit into Princess Mononoke. So let's go ahead and, and circle back to our yeah. spoiler discussion, a little bit more about Nausicaa, and then we can kind of talk about the similarities between Mononoke and Nausicaa. Uh, spoiler warning, for the first five minutes of the movie, I did not know whether or not Nausicaa was wearing pants. Oh, no, I didn't either. So when I first, I think there was definitely one of my viewings. I was convinced she was just ass out. showing her bare ass all over the screen. But then I think of this one, I was like, okay, they are slightly whiter. Very, very slightly whiter. Their skin, and they're a little puffy. So they're definitely pants. They're definitely pants. <laughs> I think she's just a candle. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's uh no, that's a known issue. You're not the only ones. I thought she was just wearing a really long dress. That's what I thought the whole time. And... Yeah, it's because they, I don't know why they did it, but I'm not an animator. I can't judge. They used a similar color to her skin. So a lot of people thought that she was not wearing pants. They should have gone with 261 did colors. You have this issue? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was like, that okay, first like... kind of like where it's like behind and it's like you're seeing up the skirt. I'm mean, like, all right, all right, Miyazaki, you show us up the, the skirt of this probably like 14 year old. Uh, you, you do you, bud. <laughs> Thanks, Miyazaki, you, for this this terrifying gift you've given us. Yeah. Yeah, but I know Miyazaki's like, you know, he's always has young girls in his thing, and he's definitely not like that. So, I, you know, I thought about it, and I was like, that can't be. That can't be. Yeah, this was any other animator. <laughs> you'd be her bare like, ass. Oh, dirty pervs. Yeah, anyone else, I'd be like, ooh. So she was, n- in fact, not pantsless. There's the spoiler. <laughs> spoilers people are waiting for but let's talk a little bit about the god figure in this film because 
you know, I think this is definitely something where a trope was subverted. I think that we had this hyped up God character and we thought he was going to do a lot of bad things. And then he just decays. He wasn't ready to do what he needed to do. And so that was definitely a surprise, I think, for me when I first watched this film that he didn't really have much impact and he definitely was kind of useless. <laughs> he did some. He did a little bit. He did a little bit, but but not that much. Hey, Caitlin. So I was curious what you guys thought about that. Caitlin, did he remind you of a certain something from Mass Effect? <laughs> no, what? From the, the end boss of two, who was just a torso with arms and a head. <laughs> oh, it, oh yes, 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 yeah. Which is literally just what this guy, this thing was. Just Also kind of <laughs> useless, because I killed him. Yes, very, very easily. Exactly. Yeah, last second playthrough, I destroyed it. I was like, what did I even do? Like, I was like, I remember this being much longer. I don't know what happened. I think with the God, I felt like there should have been more with it. And I'm wondering, that's one of the things when I kind of interested in reading the manga, I wonder if they did more with that character and they just cut his, his scene time for time. But I can also see it being a bit of a bit of fitting to the theme in which you can't wait for God to come in and fix things for you. So, but I think, I, I don't know, I feel like there should have been more there. I was going to like go circle back I to like this was probably confidential. Uh, the, like the decaying God, I thought that was like the visuals of that were very, very cool. Very well done. Mm-hmm. I think the God in general, so the God being like this nuclear weapons allegory, um, I think it's like decaying worked really well for that. That like we have this thing, it has this destructive capability, but it's, we can't control and it's not fully coached we don't have the capabilities for it of like all we know is how to use this to destroy but it's only going to destroy like ourselves and like i think the the other kind of like nuclear references like how the the earth itself was poisoned and stuff like that i think it all kind of worked really well together um just how like I, I do like how that trope was subverted because I was very much waiting for this god to like stand up and start crunching its way through and like the the ohms to like overtake it or whatever. Um, but I liked how that played out and was was really surprised by that. I liked how the whole god was handled. But I always I called it a titan when I was thinking about it because it very much reminded me of a titan. But I feel like it's weird to keep calling it god because I don't think it I don't think it was an actual god. I think it was just like. A god word. Like, I think that was just sort of there was something they were calling it because of how powerful it was. I don't think this was an actually a god. I think this was just a very powerful thing. I mean, I, I don't think if you make made a god, you'd be like, "Oops, uh, I spilled it. I spilled my god." Like, I don't think you should be able to spill a god. I'm just saying. So, well, it was definitely like an ancient creature, and I think it just it really just wasn't ready to be used, and it was just too old, and I don't think it was operational anymore. I think that wasn't um, the problem that like it was too it was it, the opposite actually like they it came out too early like it, they they had to put it they they took it out of the oven too fast essentially like yeah it but it was done. like in an egg type thing for like several thousands of years. Well, you gotta yeah. wait a several thousand more. Let me bring it out undercooked. Yeah. This is what you get. <laughs> I think you can call it a god, and I think more so because watching the prequel, the the live action short film, which I feel kind of nerdy saying that. Well, you know, if you guys actually look at the literature and look at the the prequel short film, (laughs) but no, the the gods they really do come out of nowhere. And I think when you call them gods, you I think you have to think about it more in the Japanese folklore 
or just folklore in general when it comes to gods. I think very much on our side of the world, when we think of God, we think about the God, but in a lot of cultures, you have multiple gods and you have gods that have been slain. You have gods that have been taken out by titans. And, you know, I think titans is a good word for it because the gods can be just like that. So I don't think it was the God, like the creator of the world, but they did just spawn out of nowhere and they did just destroy human life and just left. And I think that that was their, their purpose. And I think here they weren't meant to destroy nature. So when they humans try to weaponize it, try to use it as a nuclear weapon, it showed that, hey, you cannot stop nature. I think... Um... Now, now that you've said that, I think like now that I've sort of you know taken a few seconds to think about it more, like while it is not godly, like it's not you know like I you know omnipotent. If this thing just should have showed up, you'd be like, oh man, this thing, this well, it's God. <laughs> Whoa, you'd be kind of like yeah, it's, this it's incredibly big. <laughs> big, incredibly powerful thing just shows up. You're like, is this a god? Could this be a god? Like especially in the, you know this sort of post-apocalyptic scenario where like everything's been like dumbed down even more so like like where technologically we've sort of gone back a bit this thing sort of appearing would be even more godlike i think as far as the whole like decaying aspect it kind of reminded me of the witch of the waste in howl's moving castle and it's kind of like where we get into those subversive villains because the Wick of the Waste was definitely hyped up to be the big bad of House Moving Castle. And then at some point we just kind of see her walking up these stairs and she's kind of just decaying. She turns older at some point. And she's just like old, nasty, sweaty old lady. And it kind of was like that. It kind of reminded me of that where it's like you think that this is going to be the real villain and then it, it just doesn't turn out that way. Yeah, so again, I feel like they're may have been more in the manga because I get that, that yeah, sometimes things show up in the film and then they just collapse and that could be his own purpose. But for some reason here, I just felt like there was supposed to be more. So what did you think about after our giant God decayed? What did you think about the resolution to this film? And the ending was something that Miyazaki kind of went back and forth with. And I think um, they had a couple different choices for the ending, but I know in one original thing that Nausicaa actually did die at the end in one of his proposed endings, but then they said, hey, we can't do this. It's a little too dark. So what did you, you think a little bit about how everything was resolved in this film? I think she should have died. Not because I dislike her, but I think, I don't know, I think it would have been better. <laughs> That's just me personally. I think the idea of her dying would have been good. I think it kind of sends... Uh, maybe like the wrong message of like you have to sacrifice yourself for nature, which I know kind of goes against the like Japanese style, or at least the Shinto style of like living with and you know we're all part of it and stuff like that. Um, which she I knew she wasn't going to because like how she gets stampeded, she just does like the ragdoll flip through the air and it's like <laughs> oh, oh, ragdoll, it's just straight messiah. Just <laughs> I was like. Dash it. The films are gonna bring her back. I do think how it tied in like well without like the the, the, the foreshadowing at the beginning on the of the tapestry of like the guy and the uh, like the field of gold or whatever. I thought that was a, a nice tie back into something that like I'd forgotten about, which I guess is what good foreshadowing does. Um, but I thought that was pretty good. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. I do think like if it wasn't if it was redone completely and she just kind of like 
dies, dies. I think it'd be really bad if that smarmy, snarky guy just kind of is like, oh, well, I guess I'm fine. And then Nausicaa dies. I think that would be weirder, but I think if you did a, a, a full change, I f- feel like her death could be impactful, but I, I do like how it ended. I th- I feel like with the whole life finds a way theme, but it makes sense that she would come back to life. Obviously, it always has more impact when they don't come back to life, but but I think it made sense for the story. And as far as the story that they wanted to tell. I think it felt a bit ex machina. I wasn't a big fan of the ending. Mm-hmm. I think if you're not going to have her die, and I can see you as a creator going both ways with this, because this is a film, it is a children's film with an adult message. I like to think that the manga has something different because I think it could have had the complex message that if we continue in, if the adults continue in their ways and destroying nature and fighting amongst themselves, then it's not them that will suffer. It's going to be the children, the future uh, rulers of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's something that could have kind of brought the kingdoms together. But I can also see, Hey, that's a complex message for a children's story. So I don't think, I think it would have been better if the stampede just stopped short and she does what she does and she collapsed from all the weight and they, again, they get together and not so much like nature heals her because when I say it's ex machina, it does feel like it's out of nowhere that they can all of a sudden heal wounds. Mm -hmm. Like what is it about them that heals wounds? Maybe if they showed that earlier, like when she was a child and when she was messing with that baby, like it cleared up a cut or something but it just kind of came out of came out of nowhere. You could have probably also still have done the golden fields of her walking in the blue dress and still been able to fulfill that prophecy. So I think just the like having her get to that point and then reviving her through the tears of nature, it, it was a little it was too ex machina for my taste. Yeah, I think some setup would have definitely been better. You, like you mentioned with the baby of like that scene, I think could pretty impactful. Also. Having me the only scene I saw uh, dubbed because when I went back to it on HBO Max, it automatically started the English version. <laughs> yeah, that's like, a, a minute. I, yeah, it did that for me. I was like, I'm just going to go with whatever it chooses for me. Is there anything uh, else you want to talk about in our spoiler discussion as far as your opinions or things that you noticed in the film before we move on? No, there's, uh, there's a scene. I'm getting the Princess Mononoke. Don't worry. <laughs> there's a scene where um, they're in a ship that's on fire. And in, I'm imagining that in the future that people are just very resistant to fire because literally no one is burned by this fire. That it, it is literally <laughs> everywhere. No, that, they showed a burned body. Issues. They showed a charred body. That person was dead and then they burned. These are Only the living are resistant to fire in this universe, I imagine. <laughs> Once your life force goes out, you can, you can be burned. I don't know. That was the weirdest, another, weird, another weird Connor nitpick coming, in, coming at you. Right I didn't here. notice that one. No one, no one burned good enough. <laughs> No, no one got burns. Terrible burns. Oh, another, another flaw I saw in the movie, and again, I'm wondering if the manga explicates this more. Is that the diplomacy that the Tomikians had? Which the whole time I was wondering is that a token reference? Uh, but when the Tomikians come in, they tell Lord Yupa like, "Hey, hey, we're just here to talk. We just want to talk it out. We just gotta work some things out." Don't mind that I just assassinated your lord. I'm here to talk. I was really confused by that. I was like, what? See, I liked that. Because I feel like that that's how it goes. Everyone always says they want to come in peace. But at, at what cost? What cost but is peace? 
So I, I, I actually like that part but of the movie. But they were literally... Uh, I, and it did make me laugh. It was a little funny. It was dramatic, but I feel like it worked being dramatic. I don't dramatic think so, because they even went back wrote, and it still didn't make sense when they were saying it. No, I mean, it made sense. I mean, also the king did attack them, too, He was in his so. bed with a sword pointing out. That was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we don't know. We didn't really see the whole fight, but he did get his sword out. And, but I, I liked that, because I think that, you know, it was making a point with that. I don't think... We were meant to take it too seriously and too literally. I think that we were supposed to kind of like, oh, huh, huh. this is what you're trying to say. <laughs> okay. Assassination just of kings. To, just to sort of, just to like, like sort of like contextualize this, literally, they just no knock warranted the king. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is what happened to the king. They no knock warranted him. Yeah, I want to see your, uh, your self, what you consider self-defense, Caitlin. <laughs> Oh, the sick man's coming right at me from the bed. No, no, no. I'm not saying I'm not saying that he was actually a threat to them. I'm just saying that I think that was intentional. I think you're taking it a little too seriously. I think it was just a, a kind of an interesting nod and something that we were supposed to take that away with. Oh, of course they're not really coming peace, but this is actually what what people do. I mean, this is how kings were murdered all the time back then. So you know, I mean, this is it just is historical, especially in medieval times. Just it it, it fit for me. Yeah. I- like I said, I think you're just taking it too. Maybe it sounded different during the was. subs, but I got nobody was laughing on the dub. <laughs> I mean, not the characters, obviously, but I like I said, I think they were trying to make a point, and like I said, it's true. That's what happened all the time. It's a joke, but also it's a very realistic joke, unfortunately. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't. It, the humor wasn't even like if that happened throughout the film, I could see that, but that type of humor was never there. So it just felt like something like, hey, we killed the king, by the way, completely forget about that. But it was said at what I was trying to say. We're supposed to think, oh, obviously we're not coming in peace. They just, we're supposed to think that. Maybe it sounded different on the d- sub. Because again, the, the dub, it was like, geez. I'm pretty sure they, was, they even added a character in the background. Like, dang, he's dead. Like, there's no tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, just that. That's a- but it's not, it doesn't meant to sound tongue-in-cheek. It's how you, as a viewer, is supposed to receive that. It's not necessarily, oh, ha-ha, we come in peace. Like, it wasn't, like, really, like, cheeky moment. I'm just saying that as a person who is evaluating a film and, and has a context of different struggles throughout history, that's how we're supposed to take that. And especially it being a pacifist film, it making that statement was intentional. I'm on Team Bryant on this one. Uh, I see. I took I took notes on this one and I wrote the phrase Terri- they are terrible at peace four times four separate occasions. <laughs> oh yeah, they are. But but that's how it goes. Everyone always says they come in peace, and it's never yeah, true. I wrote it in my notes. <laughs> they, 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 it's they, not the first movie that's done this. Uh, it's not the first movie that's done this. It won't be the last, and it's not the first time in history that this has been said. They 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 have like the the Mars attacks. We come in peace kind of approach to it. Yeah, but kings are always killed in their beds. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> Always. When they're being funny, like they, and oh, we're doing this for the good of the people. I we're gonna just help you guys. We're gonna eliminate this monarch, but we're gonna help you because we're gonna take a charge. And what we're doing is the good stuff, and we're gonna take care of y'all. It's gonna be a peaceful land. I'm still gonna say I think they literally, they literally know not. I don't think that that they're like, oh, we're gonna take over. There, I think they, I honestly think they know not warranted the king. They're like, okay, we showed up, we bust in. That guy has a sword. We're to kill him. Yeah, short sword at that. That's what I kind of felt like to me. I don't know how he ended up yeah, on the floor. Like he... Yeah, I mean, obviously he wasn't really defending himself. But I feel like you're taking this too seriously. I feel like you're taking it at face value without the context. Just remind me, like, I don't know. when I, I start conquering his... countries, not to take you with me. I'm like, all right, we're going to go in. 
We're going to go ahead, talk to these people. We're going to give them some pamphlets, show them that we mean good cause. Caitlin, what are you doing with a bloody knife? What happened? I'm not I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying, but that's historically what happens. And that's what we see all the time. So the fact that Miyazaki took a trope that is seen over and over again in fantasy all the time and in medieval lore and then kind of poked fun of it, not in a joke way, but as a writer made that with the intention of it. That's what we were going to come away with. I thought it was good. I, I could see that. And, and this is the last time I think we've been going about this. I think it would, I could see your point if they came back to it because they kind of did it and then no one else mentioned but it. But they did when he was talking again at the, at the group. They definitely brought it back up like in the next scene or so. I was like, I do kind of see Kate's point on that. How they, <laughs> as she's the um, the princess is like pontificating to like the crowd in the village. And then it's revealed that it's yeah, like, that uh, point. that they killed the king and they're all like up in arms and not so guys like calm them. I think it does kind of get to that. Uh, they're preaching peace, but acting violence. The, the Mars attacks version mm-hmm. of peace to steal Connor's phrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about why this movie was significant for this time. You know, we talked a lot about the historical context. Um, I think that definitely causes a lot of significance. We talked about the, um, its relations to nuclear warfare. We talked about the Minamata Bay incident. So I definitely feel like it was a message that was good for its time. That made sense for its time. Yeah, this was significant for its time in that again this is when animation really wasn't that huge yet we didn't have studio ghibli yet this was pre-studio ghibli and it's an animated film that brought in a impactful message a message that is still seen throughout time and something that we have to consider especially even now like we're doing this in celebration of earth day now and while it is celebrating the earth it's also a reminder that we need to take care of it you can tell that this was significant for its time in that the U.S. didn't even know how to handle it when they got it. They had to. They didn't think that anybody was going to understand this film, so they went ahead and, and butchered it up. And it wasn't until later that, oh, you know, oh, this is what they were making over in Japan, and everybody really started to love it. And I think the, like, the environmental message, or especially around that time, I think the manga was earlier, like, 81, 82, of how Japan had this like massive rise of like this this super rapid industrialization around the electronics industry and this like super modernization, especially in like the late seventies and eighties, and that kind of juxtaposed with this kind of vast natural landscape of technology or technical allegory leading to this you know wasteland. I think that's a, a very cool thing, and you see that replicated again in Mononoke. You see it replicated in a, in a lot of later anime and in Japanese stuff like that about like this huge industrial buildup and kind of this move away from nature when so much of Japanese society and culture is built around this like connection to nature. Um, I think that was pretty cool and something I took away, but also I've done like uh, as part of my research, so it's like this is super interesting to me. <laughs> No, I like hearing more about it. I'm definitely interested in it's, that. Well, there's, especially like in the like 70s, 80s, there was kind of break. Well, it, not once, I'll go back. I don't want to go super far back. But say like pre the lead up to like World War II, uh, 
things were much more kind of tied to nature and there was much more of this kind of like Shinto impact of, you know, human and nature and spirituality all kind of living together. And then you get this, the military, you know, dictatorship. And then as even as the technical dictatorship went away, there was still this kind of one party domination in Japan that really turbocharged their modernization. How we have the Japan we have today is because this focus on industrialization and how that kind of severed this kind of connection where now there's like this more like or for a long time, especially in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, this kind of like lip service connection to nature. You advertise nature. Like if someone was coming to America, we'd show them the Grand Canyon. But when we think of America, we probably think of major cities or, you know, political corruption. I don't know what people are thinking of when they think about America, but they're selling, you know, <laughs> the idea of like Shinto and nature and this connection. But really, there is this kind of uh, this way more technocratic way to look at things from like a political mindset and how. These two Ghibli movies that I've seen both had this, A, focus on nature and kind of like the wrath of nature, but B, especially and you see it in Mononoke about how the industrialized people uh, were literally trying to kill nature and conquer nature to like take its power. And I think that's an interesting thing, not to pivot to Mononoke too fast, but that's the, the thing that I thought about the most. So, Ben, from a modern point of view, do you think that this film holds up in its environmental yes. message? Yes, I think uh, it's super uh, important, especially now. Like, yeah, like because I saw Mononoke first, I compared that to it as a baseline when it should be the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but especially now, the idea of us trying to conquer nature, I think, is very prevalent and now we're really kind of seeing that like wrath of nature i think in both these movies nature is more like personified and has these actions whether it's uh you know the ohms who like you can literally like talk to and reason with or like the um the forest creatures of mononoke who you could all literally talk um and they are taking these you know retributive actions against the people versus you know how nature is more we're feeling the wrath of nature and climate change and things like that where it's not an, you know an angry bug or an angry boar but it's just the acts of nature but it's like the personification of those things so i think it's like oddly more prevalent now especially as we're mm-hmm. indus- not industrializing but uh technologizing isn't a word but we're just charging more headlong into like the technology aspect but we're going to start feeling the, the wrath of nature in a much bigger way soon and we're feeling it now but in you know 10, 20 years, it'll be way more prevalent. So yeah, I think these are oddly prophetic movies. Well, actually, no, they have happy ends. So not prophetic. There were good warning signs that we ignored. Yeah. I definitely think I agree with you that we're seeing a lot of these effects from climate change, so it does definitely feel timely. I also saw a lot of articles that were coming out about this film in 2020, um, just because of COVID, that people were comparing this film to just the COVID era in general, just the idea that we have to wear a mask and we're in this toxic environment. It's not quite the same as, as climate change, those effects, but but still, it's something interesting, but I think that, that people took away from the film that I necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have thought on my own. But I did see quite a few articles about that. Yeah, I didn't think about that too right now, but it does make a lot of sense. But then there's a lot of like, uh, mm-hmm. like literature connecting to the COVID response to a climate change response or those things. They're oddly like tied together in a lot of, in a political mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, they are. Mask up for climate change. <laughs> yeah, I like how 
you know, and both of these movies, the Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa, uh, they show an interesting side of things. It's not so much, I feel like, more so over here in the West when we think about destroying nature and everything. It's more of using up our resources and being left with nothing or that some giant monster comes in and they destroy us all or something comes in and kills us all and makes us pay for you know the years and centuries of disservice to the planet but I like the way that these films show nature especially this one I've already talked about how I say the Chizo Corporation tragedy because I want to hold them accountable for what they did not just make it seem like this was this had just happened and it was no one's fault at all. But to show that nature still goes on. And it's kind of, it's nice to know that oh, eventually, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't get to this point where we end up destroying the earth. But it's nice to know that nature is going to still continue on. But it's also a warning that, hey, if we want to continue living on with them, that it's nature that's truly in control of the planet. And it's us that really need to listen to them. Because in this film, you have these three different kingdoms that are going at it. And one of them is doing it right, which is Nausicaa's kingdom, which is actually listening to nature and being one with it. It's not so much like we have to protect nature and and preserve it, but to learn to live and coincide alongside of it. So let's kind of switch topics a little bit because we keep bringing it up. We keep bringing up Princess Mononoke. And this film, it did precede Princess Mononoke by 13 years. So that is quite a long time. But there are so many similarities between these two movies. And for me, I saw Nausicaa first, um, which I think is the opposite for all of you. So I think that definitely influenced how I saw Mononoke having seen Nausicaa first but I'm curious to see how it holds up comparatively to that movie does it feel more dated than Mononoke like I said maybe I'm the hipster in the group that says that Nausicaa does Princess Mononoke better than Princess Mononoke and, and I'm willing to take that title but how do you feel about it holding up in that regard and the comparisons between that film I will say that I definitely like like enjoyed princess mononoke more without a doubt i think it's sort of just i don't know maybe it's more of a me movie because i'm sort of it's more it has more fantasy elements and i'm definitely very into fantasy stuff like there's like actual gods you know and you know talking animals i don't know i think i think it is sort of you know an updated version like a proper updated version of you know nausicaa I think, well, one, I think, like, the animation took that big step ahead, like, where we were talking about the things we like about, like, the, the detail and, like, the Sea of Decay. I think you just see, like, more of that in Princess Mononaka, but then also it's 13 years later and they probably have a bigger budget. Like, I just remember the, the scene at the beginning of Princess Mononoke where the boar comes out or the, the, the demon comes out and is all, like, the, the squiggles off it. I'm like, that's next level and, like, the detail on some of these things are great. And the, the, mountain god the forest god when it's like doing its transformation just really like spot on but probably things you couldn't do in 1984 um i think one of the things mononoke does better is kind of like the interrelationship between like the protagonists and like the more modernized society i think it kind of hits that pacifist level a little bit better that um i forget the character's name main guy 
guy I'm on, okay? Billy Crota. Oh, Shiitake? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how he, like, doesn't want, like, was it Iron Town? Town? Iron Town. Yeah, Iron He doesn't Town. want anyone there to be hurt. And even, like, the woman who's, like, literally out there trying to, like, kill nature doesn't want her to get hurt. The monk, the Billy Bob Thornton monk, ends up fine. He's like, oh, well, <laughs> looks like nature wins. And I think that it kind of hits that pacifist message a little more. But I think Nausicaa does the actual, like, character's interaction with nature better. I think she interacts better with nature than, say, the characters in Prinoke. Um I think Princess Mononoke herself was a little, eh, as a character. <laughs> That's kind of mean. She's fine, but she was mm-hmm. kind of, like, I guess a little too wishy-washy she's a little too anime (laughs) yeah no i agree with you i think that i don't i wasn't a big fan of the the lead characters in princess mononoke i I did like lady irontown whatever her name is i'm gonna call her lady Lady irontown i think yeah but but side note i remember is lady eboshi (laughs) (laughs) lady eboshi i liked her and a side note i think that she was a better daenerys targaryen than daenerys targaryen (laughs) Like, that kind of, like, I'm a savior, I'm a good person, but at the same time, I'm going to do these awful things. So I kind of like that side of her story. I liked her as a character, but I, I think our main characters, I didn't like as much as Nausicaa herself. But I think that I agree that the whole connection with nature, I think that the environmentalism message in Nausicaa is stronger, just because I think Nausicaa is a bit more simpler of a story. And I think, uh, Brian, I, we've talked about this before, I think story-wise... I like simple stories. I like, I don't really need a convoluted plot. I think sometimes Mononoke went a little bit more convoluted to me. And also just Mononoke for me doesn't feel like a Miyazaki film for me. Um, And I think that the, it's definitely more bloody. I think it's, Mononoke and The Wind Rises are the only two PG-13 movies of Miyazaki's films. The rest are G or PG. But I feel like for me, the the bloody nature of it, you know, you see heads coming off and everything was a little contrary to the pacifist Miyazaki that I'm used to. So I think that that also hindered it a little bit. But I do agree that as far as animation goes, it was next level. Um, Not quite spirited away level, but it was obviously a big jump for Ghibli as a whole. I watched Princess Mononoke for a second time a couple years ago. After that watch... I wasn't too sure if it was still my favorite Studio Ghibli film. But moving that to the side, comparing it to Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, I think Nausicaa does the environmental message better than Princess Mononoke. I think Princess Mononoke, I think the message is a little bit more straightforward while the plot is, like you said, a bit more convoluted. I think it does have more of a complex plot to it. But I think as far as the message goes, I think Nausicaa... One, it shows it in a way that is not too conventional, and I think it's it's more fitting to the Ghibli overall theme and aesthetic that it has going on. Princess Mononoke does feel a little bit different than the other Studio Ghibli films. I'm not sure really which one I prefer, Nausicaa or Princess Mononoke, so at least that's something. You, know, you probably were expecting me to come in here and still say Princess Mononoke is definitely the better one. But no, I I see the argument of why Princess Mononoke is not as good as Nausicaa. I can already say that the environmental message was done better in Nausicaa. So I think I'll go ahead and rewatch Princess Mononoke to really see 
which is the better film? I think Princess Mononoke is a more thrilling film. I could say that definitely. It has the action, it has the animation, it has the larger creatures. I think is a more exciting film. And like I said, there are still some flaws with Nausicaa, but at least as far as like the theme and the message goes, I'll say Nausicaa does have the win in that in that retrospect. Not saying you're right, Caitlin, or anything like that. Just saying, hey, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> no, I mean, I definitely liked Mononoke better the second time I watched it because I, I feel like I, the second time I watched it, I watched it more without trying to compare it to Nausicaa. I tried to watch it more as its own thing. Uh, and I appreciate it more. It still ranks pretty low for me as far as Miyazaki's films go. It's not going to hit my top three or definitely, or maybe not even my top five. I'm not sure. Like I said, it's it's too different for me. It feels out of place. Um, I feel like if I'm talking about a film that captures Miyazaki as a director, it's definitely not going to be uh, Princess Mononoke. But I understand why people like it, and I do like the visuals a lot. I like I like the um the gods a lot more too uh, in this um film. I like the creatures, and I understand why someone would like it. I do agree; it's more thrilling as a plot, but it just it kind of lacks some of that Ghibli charm to me. And I just like I said, the environmental message is something that I just really really enjoyed out of Nausicaa, and I think that's why I'm I'm drawn to that more as well. Anyone else have anything to say as far as Mononoke and Nausicaa Ghosts? Not, not to beat the soundtrack thing. I really like the soundtrack in, in Princess Mononoke. I think it fits. It's very similar to like the like Uchichi soundtrack, so I think it, it tied that really in. I think it's the mm. more kind of like simpler traditional instruments. Um, I think really kind of like set like a headspace for it. I think that was really good. Uh, but we dunked on the Nausicaa um, soundtrack a lot already, so I don't want to. <laughs> go back yeah. to that but i really like princess Monica's soundtrack i think that the story as a whole of nausicaa doesn't feel dated but there, it definitely there are elements in it that definitely feel more dated than mononoke i said i could tell the princess wearing pants as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i think good. technically princess mononoke is better as far as animation and score i like i kind of i don't i can't think of it but i like it's, it's faint but thinking about like when the the scene where a certain forest creature has is beheaded in Princess Mononoke, or when they're going through the forest and you have like those little clicking dolls, the the sound and the score that's being used, I do prefer those a lot. Like those, not even just prefer; those are just it's just excellent scoring and animation and just cinema overall. So, I, but again, it's expected that Princess Mononoke is better technically. They had it's a thirteen year gap. They had an established uh, studio with probably you know twenty times the budget. This movie was only made with what would be now eight million dollars. I mean, uh, one million dollars. It made eight million dollars. Yeah, that is pretty. Impressive. And the fact that it's like dated, like, isn't like the worst thing in the world. I know it's something that like we might not look at as like the best, but I think it's you know you look at Nausicaa's like a the good story, but it's also with like a significant film in film history because it is kind of like the proto kickoff to Ghibli, which is, is like had this massive impact. So the fact that it is kind of dated isn't like the worst thing, but I'm also like a fan of history and film history, so it's like oh, I like this back there. And just with design, when it comes to animation, that can just have your film lasting for a while or till the end of time. We talked a little bit about Akira, but Akira was only made in 88 and 
yeah, the I would say like the color is dated, but those designs, if you just put the time and have those details in there, animation is just always going to stand up. It's always going to be impressive in that right. You know, it's just like practical effects. Practical effects that they put the detail in there, they can still be appreciated. You look at the thing, which was made in 82. Yeah, some are a little bit dated. Some can be laughable, but still seeing that amount of detail that's put in there, it it holds up. So let's go ahead and move on to our ranking of this film. So you guys are obviously new to our podcast. So the rankings that we have, you can give it anywhere from an E to an A. Or if you think that it's even greater than an A, it's something you're going to rewatch over and over again, you really love this film, you can give it an S-tier ranking or an S-tier candidate ranking if this is something that is newer to you. Uh, In that case, it's something that we may revisit later and decide, oh yes, this is my favorite film of all time. So that would be what our S-tier is. So do you, who wants to start us off with their final comments and their ranking of this film? Do I have, so okay. Using that ranking, let's see. I have no final comments. I think I basically said everything I wanted to say. I would say this is a C plus, C plus movie. All right, right in the middle. Fitting for someone who called it mid. I was like, that's a plus. We we talked him. <laughs> yeah, it, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I originally what was going to be like, okay, I'm using the my anime list rating. This is I put it as a six, which I feel like is about a C plus. I did convert gotcha. that mentally in my head. I <laughs> probably have it as a. Um, I'm I do have like a I tend to like rank things higher. Like uh, it takes a lot for me to like not a lot it takes enough for me to give something like a C or like a six on my anime list. If this was my anime list, I'd probably put it as like an eight, just in that range because. I did like the message. I like the story. Um, I'm not like overly in love with like too many things, but but it's not things that make me like hate it. I feel like if I, I like something enough, I'll put it as an eight, and if I love it more, I'll go higher. But it, there's still a lot I liked about it. Um, so so B. Yeah, I think I'm right there. I think I'm torn between a B and a B plus. It's like I mean it's. It's almost a territory. It's just that I have to knock it down a couple points because I don't think some things fit well together story-wise and you know, a couple of decisions that were made and the ending as well. Like I said, I wasn't a big fan of. I don't really like that Ex Machina. It's kind of a, you know, Ex Machina is never good. It, it never is. And But there's still just a lot to admire in this film, a lot to enjoy. The message is timeless. So I, I would say a B plus. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that I'm going to go higher than that. For me, this is in my top three favorite Ghibli films, number one being Howl's Moving Castle, and then it kind of competes with Spirited Away for that number two slot. Um, so for me, I think it's it's going to be a solid A for this film. I, I just really enjoy this film. It's It's been one of my favorite Ghibli films for a long while now, and or at least my favorite Miyazaki films. I still have to watch a little bit more in the Ghibli territory, um, but of Miyazaki films, it's definitely in my top three. Yeah, and I can, like, I totally understand that, too. I think if you say this is a, a, a film, even if you said it was an A-plus film, or, you know, it's personal to you, and you were to go S-tier, I can definitely see it with this film. Yeah, it's not quite S tier. S tier would be Howl's Moving Castle for sure. But, you know, a little bit lower than that. I think A is is a good 
place for it because it does have flaws. It definitely is a flawed movie. Like I said, there are things that are a little bit dated. Um, Story-wise, there are things that, like you said, that don't line up. But for what it is and for the story that it is and the post-acopulatic aesthetic of it, the costuming, um, the use of color, the kind of simple narrative and the environmental message, all of that I just, I'm just absolutely in love with. So it's, it's going to be an A for me. So thank you guys for joining us for our podcast today. Uh, thank you. For Do you have any us. final things you want to say before we kind of wrap this up? Bring me back for all Godzilla and anime related things. I'll, I'll always be to come <laughs> back. If you thought I was yeah. a, if you thought I was a anime a big anime fan, wait till you see me. We'll talk about Godzilla. Oh man. Oh man. Yeah, I've already I've already told you that if we do a Godzilla episode, you're gonna be you're gonna be invited. <laughs> please, please. I'd be thrilled. Thanks for having me. I'll gladly come back for any anime thing. One, it was great meeting you guys, and it was great sitting here discussing this with you. I'm guessing, yeah, we'll see you for the Godzilla episode. I'm guessing we'll probably see you for the Akira episode as well, which I'm already excited for that movie. So, spoil it. I really like that. Like, I watched it the second time, and it's one of those movies I watched the second time and realized that I love that film. So, I'm glad. I'm looking forward to watching it a third time. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I mean, I've seen it once, but you know, I'm definitely like second viewing can never hurt anyone. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm ready for it. I'm ready. Yeah, for we it. have to do something outside Studio yeah, Ghibli now. It. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's there's much left as far as our podcast mission that we can do with Studio there's still Ghibli, more. unless we wanted. To, well, unless we wanted to take a, a another Takahata film. Yeah, break up Porco Rosso. Get that. Uh... Porto Rosso, yeah, finally get that one done. Oh, maybe. We'll see. But maybe not. Not for a little. Let's take a little bit of a break <laughs> from it and do something else. But if you want to listen to our upcoming podcast, um, we do have an episode coming up next that we've been kind of teasing for some time. You know, we're decided to go on the run next week. Um, we're going to lay low. We're going to get our New York Herald Tribune give out a read while we're waiting as we watch Breathless and discuss Breathless as we tackle our French New Wave episode. And until then, you can also find us on social media. We're going to be at Op Silver Screen on Twitter and Instagram, or you can find us on Facebook at Operation Silver Screen. But once again, on Twitter and Instagram, it's going to be Op Silver Screen. You can also find me and Brian on our personal letterboxes. Mine is Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T. And Brian's is Swank Seal. That's capital S, capital S. We do look forward to hearing your comments. We want to know what you thought between Nausicaa and Princess Nanonoke. We want to know... Which one you think reigns supreme? I'll be curious to see. So please leave a comment on that. And please do review review if you did like this podcast as well. Yes. And not only follow us on social media, please contact us. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. Make sure to leave us a review because all this stuff we do take in. Uh, we do take in all types of criticism and we do use it to go ahead and mold our show into something that's not only enjoyable for ourselves, but enjoyable for you guys as well. There's a lot of things that we're thinking about going ahead and bringing to the show or taking the show to this point, but we're also curious what you guys think as well. And we also do have our blooper reel coming up as well, isn't that Yes, right, it is. Man? Yes, it is. Once I stop procrastinating, it is. I mean, it's all there. I just gotta. <laughs> I just got to put it together. Yeah. I think you're just embarrassed. I think you're just holding off because you're not ready for them to start laughing at us. <laughs> Actually, if anything, I'm waiting 
so that I have boring the outtakes because actually it's mostly you right now. And I swear it's not on purpose. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, if you want to laugh at me a bit, keep keep looking out for that episode then when we'll have that. But until then, thanks for listening to us and we hope to see you next time. Oh, one more thing. If you are from any other country, we would love to hear from you. We've been noticing that we've just been getting listeners from all over the world. So we would like to, I don't know, just make contact with anybody globally. I know that we recently we had Serbia, Cambodia, Portugal, all sorts of places have been following us now. And that's it's very interesting. Yeah, we definitely love to hear from you and see your perspective because obviously we have a very American perspective on all of these films that we're because we're from America, obviously. But if we're definitely curious to see a more broadly view and hear what you have to say. Yeah, if you want to see also some representation in us for doing some movies from your country, hey, best way to let us know. Definitely. So again, make sure to join us on our next debrief for Breathless. Really looking forward to that one. Till next time, I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. See you. Thank you.